No. Greetings from James. This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is written to Jewish for joy. For when your faith is tested and your endurance has a chance to grow, so let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be strong in character and ready for anything. If you need wisdom, if you want to know what God wants you to do, ask him and he will gladly tell you. He will not resent your asking, but when you ask him, be sure that you really expect him to answer. For a doubtful mind is an unsettled as a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. People like that should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. They can't make up their minds. They waver back and forth in everything they do. Christians who are poor should be glad, for God has honoured them. And those who are rich should be glad, for God has humbled them. They will fade away like flowers in the field. The hot sun rises and dries up the grasses. The flowers wither and its beauty fades away. So also, wealthy people will fade away with all their achievements. God blesses the people who patiently endure testing. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to all those who love him. And remember, no one who wants to do wrong should ever say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone else either. Temptation comes from the lure of our own evil desires. These evil desires lead to e evil actions and evil actions lead to death. So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect comes to us from God above who created all the heaven's lights. Unlike them, he never changes or casts shifting shadows. In his goodness, he chose to make us his children by giving us his true word and we, out of all creation, become his choice possession. And uh, when I was 15, I've got a sister that's 10 years younger than me, and we were holidaying at Noosa, and we were getting hungry, so we decided, with permission from parents, that we'd just duck down to the local fish and chip shop. So Maxine, my sister, came with me, and we went into this shop, and it was absolutely crowded. Um, this, this is going back quite a few years ago now. And anyway, we went into the shop, and we waited patiently, and there were all these people ahead of us and they were served and I could see that the man that was serving was really quite an abrupt, quite, quite a rude person actually, very big, thick set and pretty intimidating for myself and my little sister. But anyway, we're standing in this shop and we're waiting and then other people that came in after us were being served and 
I was starting to get a little bit annoyed about this and Max was tugging on my dress because she was hungry and finally the fella came up, you know, we got to the counter and he said, so what do you want? And I said, well, could we have some chips please? So he cooked the chips and finally got them in a bucket and he slammed the bucket down on the, on the counter and the chips spilled out everywhere and my little sister started crying. And I got really upset and I stood there in the middle of that shop with my hands on my hips and I said, how dare you? How dare you? I might just be a child, but you've just upset my little sister and I don't think you should treat us like that. And I was shaking and I was upset and my little sister ran behind my skirt to hide and then right at the end she poked her head out and she goes, yeah, <laughs> and ran out of the shop and left me to defend myself with this um, not very nice man. And I guess what I wanted to say from that, we, she never forgets that, I never let her forget that actually. What I wanted to say about that in the book of James, that, that James was actually the brother or the half-brother of Jesus. James wrote this book and James was known as James the Just. And I thought, <laughs> Gail the Just for that particular time. <laughs> James was known as James the Just and he went actually from being a person that lived with our Lord, which just amazes me. You know, he saw our Lord in the everyday of his life and yet he didn't believe while Jesus was on earth who Jesus was. There are references, particularly in Matthew, that said that James and his family and his brothers doubted who Jesus was. In fact, they poured scorn on him, the scriptures say. And yet here we have uh, some, um, uh, this book was written about 60 AD, a man that lived with Jesus that wouldn't believe the claims that Jesus made about himself while he was alive, going from that Jesus antagonist to listen to the first line of this scripture. The letter is from James, a slave of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this man went from a doubter, in fact a scorner, even seeing our Lord in the everyday, to actually calling himself a slave of Jesus Christ. So obviously this man had some amazing transformation. And if you look into the uh, Greek for the word slave, the word is doulos. And doulos actually means or implies total obedience that a slave in those Hebrew days knows no other law but his master's word. Uh, doulos implies absolute humility. James was absolutely lost in his service for Christ. He had gone from this proud antagonist to a humbled slave, lost completely in humility because of Christ. And lastly, doulos, Slave means absolute loyalty. James had no interest in his own life, only what he could do for his Lord. So I think that sets the great context for this 
uh, 18 verses that Jackie read out before. Here we have James was writing to a group of people that too were lost. They, it says in the same verse, it is written to Jewish Christians scattered amongst the nations. And we know from history that there were a number of times that the Jewish people were actually scattered through persecution from Jerusalem, from Palestine. One was in 700 BC by the Assyrians. Another time was in 560 BC by the Babylonians. And more recently to James in 63 BC by the Romans and they took lots of the Jewish people off as slaves back to Rome. But James is particularly writing to a group that had been just recently persecuted by a man named Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who later had an incredible transformation and meeting with this same Jesus that James had lived with all his life. And Saul became Paul. And as we know, or those of you that have read the New Testament will know that Paul was used mightily by God to preach that transformative truth to people that weren't Jewish. They were called Gentiles. So the most recent persecution that these people that James was writing to was from Saul in about 34 AD and then again in 44 AD by Herod. And not only were these people persecuted and some of them refugees, they were mainly Palestinians and they were mostly poor. They were actually poor, they were called dirt farmers. Sorry, a bit of sticky, a chewy just stuck on my piece of paper. Um, they were poor farmers and they were known as uh, tenant farmers, which meant that they were given a plot of earth, and I'm telling you this because it helps us to understand when Paul talks about trials, what he was talking about and what he knew about in relation to the people that he was writing this letter to. And these people would just have a small plot of earth and they would have to eke out an existence from this small plot of earth. Not only had they just recently suffered persecution, but in about 60 AD, there was this incredible extended drought which had lasted throughout all of that Roman area for a long time. So the people weren't only confronted with persecution for their faith, but they were also struggling just to survive. So in this context, James writes to them. And the most amazing thing is he starts his letter off by saying in verse 2, Dear brothers and sisters, whenever trouble comes your way, let it be an opportunity for joy. It just doesn't make sense, does it? You know, I don't know how I would cope just eking out an existence like these people being or having just been persecuted in the last few decades and then this fellow writing to me and saying, well, all of your trials, just consider it joy. And, you know, I just I want to take a moment to actually make a distinction between joy and happiness because, you know, there's been a whole lot of surveys done over the last few decades on surveying people and what is their number one 
need and what is their number one priority in life. And more often than not, the thing that comes back is that people want above all else, not wealth, but happiness. Happiness. And, you know, happiness depends on happenings. You know, happiness is very transitory. I'm happy if I get this new job. I'm happy if my relationships are going well. I'm happy if I've got enough food. Um, I'm happy if my kids are doing well. Uh, that makes me happy. But happiness is based on external things. And as we know, it's just a lie. Happiness does not determine how well we are, how, how well we have adjusted to this world because we just have to look around us and if people are seeking happiness above all else, then the world is a pretty sorry state and we know that happiness does not bring that relief that they're looking for. On the other hand, joy is something that is very different and this is the joy that James is talking about. Joy is something that only develops as we allow our roots to go down deep into the soil of God's marvellous love. If we allow our roots to just dig deep into that river of life, which is Christ. And so that no matter what, when our roots are grounded strongly, our, our tree can blossom and no matter what storms come upon us, we will be grounded. And one of the fruits that, that Paul talks about in Galatians is joy. And we'll bear joy. But joy actually often only comes through trials. And James makes this point that trials are something which God either allows or brings into our life in order for us to grow like the tree, to bear fruit. So we are not to resist trials. In this whole uh, block, this whole chunk from 1 to 18, James distinguishes trials from later we read about temptations. And trials, are, as I said earlier, allowed there by God to test our faith, to, to, to enable us to endure through them so that at the end we will be refined, our character will develop. Temptations, on the other hand, are either something that we succumb to, we always succumb to them, no one else can succumb to them, it's about us, but they're usually to do with things that we have put in our lives or the devil has put in our lives. They're temptations. God never tempts us. His word is clear on that. God never tempts us. He allows trials, but he never tempts us. And as we'll see later on, temptation has its outworking if we succumb to it to death. And basically, James, what James means by death is separation from God, whereas trials... If we face them with the right attitude, it can draw us closer to God. So this first part of James talks about 
to these poor, oppressed, minority group, illiterate group, about the trials. And he says, consider it joy because of what they will do in you. And he says in verse 3, for when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. And then he says a great thing. He says in verse 4, so let it grow. And you know, I was trying to think in my kind of muddled mind about what could be a good symbolic thing to imagine what James really means by this. And I was thinking about a muddy raincoat. And I was thinking about the fact that when trials come, it's a bit like rain, isn't it? You know, trials and tribulations and troubles we, we could give the analogy to, to rain that, that comes. And maybe it's not a good analogy because a lot of farmers think rain is, well, we all think rain is fantastic. But, but sometimes rain can be bleak and, and can be really a nuisance, um, ill-timed. So I'm using that concept of rain. And I'm thinking that often in the everyday we are prepared for a certain amount of troubles to come our way. You know, we, 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 we have family we can go to, uh, we have the word. You know, we, we virtually get along okay as people that know and love the Lord. But when the rain doesn't stop, when it becomes like a deluge and it soaks and it soaks and it's relentless and it never ceases and that raincoat that we've put on as a bit of a preparation, starts to get soaked right through. And then there's uh, puddles that appear and we walk through those puddles and sometimes we fall in them and our, our raincoat gets muddy. We, just, we sometimes just lose heart and we sometimes just get exhausted. And so a lot of the time what we do is just give up and we, we sit in our muddy, wet raincoat and we just sit, and, and the rain could have stopped, but we just sit in that muddy, wet raincoat. And, and, and James is saying, this is a call to just don't sit in that muddy raincoat. Go the rest of the way. There is another point you've got to make. You've got to go inside and you've got to take off that raincoat and you've got to hang it up and then you've got to dry yourself and then you'll be beautiful, you'll be warm, you'll be dry, you'll be changed. And so often I think we give up. And Paul, uh, sorry, James says, endure because when your endurance is fully developed, you will be strong in character and ready for anything. Isn't that great? I, I, I just, I don't want trials necessarily. But I, I do want my character to grow in Jesus. I do want that more than anything. And, you know, I believe that we did 40 days, but out of that I think there are three really pertinent things that, that God wants for us as Christians or people that, that know him. And even for people that don't know him, I believe God wants the same three things. And the first is I think he wants us to love him. I think he wants us to worship him, to, to give everything to him. The, the second thing is, I think he wants us to be more like him. I really believe that. 
I think he wants us to grow more and more like Jesus. And that, that's called discipleship. And the third thing is, I think he wants us to tell others what he's done in our lives, to be enthusiastic about that. And to the second point, I think one of the most assured ways that he knows we can become more like him is through trials. We don't necessarily become more like him when everything's going well. You know, there have been amazing people all through the centuries that have endured trials and have come through and they've, they've done, because of their example, they've left legacy that has been just remarkable. People like, and he's still living, but, but someone like a Nelson Mandela who suffered for 27 years in prison and we all know what happened in South Africa on his release out of prison and how that man just created an unstoppable movement. And, you know, I was at Hillsong last year and, and a fellow called um, someone, Bonky, Reinhardt, thank you. <gasps> wow, this man is now reaping more and more of a harvest of a legacy that I believe people like Nelson Mandela uh, tilled with the soil. Uh, this man, Reinhard Bonnke, is leading millions, I don't mean thousands, I mean millions of Africans to the Lord. And we, we don't know how much the life and the suffering of Mel Nelson Mandela helped prepare the soil for that harvesting. Someone like a Loretta King, who just died recently, who was the wife of Martin Luther King, and uh, she, in her own right, through the trials and never giving up, you know, Loretta the Just, who fought for equality for blacks in America, who recently just died, and like her husband, but she continued on and endured, has left this legacy for blacks where, where equality is just, you know, just without exception so important. These people persevered and left legacies and although their lives weren't easy, they would never have had it differently, ever. You know, I reckon the devil does something quite quite sneaky. He always does sneaky things, but he does something really sneaky. Sometimes I think when we are faced with major trials in our life, I actually believe, and I don't want anyone to feel offended by this because I never want to minimise anyone's trials, but I actually believe that sometimes he gives added measure of grace in those deep, deep times to overcome. But, you know, sometimes I think it's harder for us ordinary, everyday people to endure the everyday trials of life, the little things that bring enormous, um, you know, trial. You know, it might be the child that just continually is ill, just has a long-term chronic illness. It, it might be the fact that there's long-term unemployment. It might be the fact that there's just, 
ill health continuously. It might be the fact that there's, you know, ongoing conflict in your marriage that just, just is bearable but it's never fully realised as how Christ wants it. And sometimes we just survive every day. And yet, uh, and yet James is talking about something far more wonderful than that. In verse 12, he says, God blesses the people who patiently endure testing. Afterwards, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And, and the image here is actually a wreath that the greatest athlete wears when he has finished his endurance race and has won the race. It's the same principle, the crown of life. And my prayer tonight is that for all of us that grapple with trials, it might be the minute in the everyday, that just that low-grade suffering that we put up with every day or it might be a major trial that is obvious to everyone. My prayer tonight is that you won't run from God, you'll run to him because that's exactly what James says in verse 5. He knows that we can't bear these things on our own. So he says, if you need, if you need wisdom, and if you want to know what God wants you to do in order to get through this time, to endure that race, ask him, ask him, and he will gladly tell you. You know, I just think it's amazing that we often don't go to God first. We often try every other avenue except God except coming before him. And I also think that one of the reasons we don't go to him is, A, we think we may not hear him, but B, if we do hear him, are we prepared to follow through on how he's answering our prayer? And that's a challenge I want to throw out to you tonight. Are you prepared to go to God? But even if you are, are you actually prepared to follow through on what he might actually say to you in response to this trial that's in your life because he will respond. He will respond. But you must ask, as the scriptures say, not being double-minded. In fact, the um, explanation in the Greek for double-minded is two-souled, meaning that half of our soul is with Jesus and half of our soul is with the world or the devil. And, and that's often the way, I know it's the way in my life, that I'll, I'll send up a prayer and I'll say, Lord, just help me with this and then I'll go on my merry way because I, I either don't take the time to listen to him or I, I dismiss what he might say to me about that. I really want what I want. I really want what the world wants. And so James is saying to us, don't be double-minded. Don't be too sold when you come to Jesus and ask him for wisdom. Ask with a pure heart. Ask with a focused, single mind. The Andrew Murray was saying that when he was talking about trials, he was saying, first, Jesus brought me here. It is by his will I am in 
this difficulty. In that fact, I will resist. Sorry, I will rest, not resist. I will rest. Next, he will keep me here in his love and give me grace to behave as his child. Then he will make the trial a blessing, teaching me the lessons he intends me to learn and working in me the grace he means to bestow. Last, in his good time, he can bring me out again, how and when he knows. Let me say I am here, one, by God's appointment in this situation, two, but I am also in his keeping. Remember that. I'm in his keeping. And three, I'm under his training. That's what's happening to me when I'm in this place. And four, it's for his time. Not for mine, for his. So we need to embrace trials. We need to see them as joy. This little um, poem goes, pressed out of measure and pressed to all length. Pressed so intently, it seems beyond strength. Pressed in the body and pressed in the soul. Pressed in the mind till the dark surges roll. Pressed by foes and a pressure by friends. Pressure on pressure till life nearly ends. wonder if anyone's feeling like that here tonight. But pressed into knowing no helper but God, pressed into loving the staff and the rod, pressed into liberty where nothing clings, pressed into faith for impossible things, pressed into living a life in the Lord, pressed into living a Christ life outpoured. Is that the secret? It's so crazy. If we really want to live life, no matter what troubles come upon us, we have to be emptied of life so he can fill us. We have to be emptied of our own stuff that gets in the way so Jesus can fill us to endure, to receive that crown of life. And then he looks at some attitudes he looks at some attitudes of Christians from verse 9 to verse 11. Some are poor and some are rich. And, and you might say, why does he say that the poor should be glad for God has honoured them and those who are rich should be glad for God has humbled them? They will fade away like a, field, a flower in the field. The hot sun rises and dries up the grass. The flower withers and its beauty fades so also wealthy people will fade away with all of their achievements. Well, I think God made us stewards of both the good and the bad, of wealth and poor. He made us good stewards of what we have, whether we have much or whether we have little. And the question is, how are you being a good steward of what God has given you? Because ultimately, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or you're poor. It will all fade away. So when we search and work for wealth, it's like 
a chasing, as Solomon says, a chasing of the wind because it will all eventually fade away. But what will be credited to us will be what kind of stewards we were of what God gave us, whether it's the trials and the hardships, how were we a steward of those? Did we adopt the right attitudes? Did we endure? Did we persevere? Did we take off that muddy raincoat to receive that crown of life? And in the good, did we praise him? Did we go to others and say, our God is an amazing God. He's a wonderful God. He's done this in my life. You know, when I walked in here tonight, three people stopped me and said, did you know? And all three instances were trials and testings that they'd had in their life and God had answered those testings and trials and had delivered them. And yet through that process, they, I could see it in their faces, were able to say, prayer, God is great, God is good, it really works. Prayer really works. God is really real. We don't know that until we're tested in the fires. We don't know how real our God is. So whether you're wealthy or whether you're poor, it's an issue of good stewardship. Do you sit and complain in your wet, muddy raincoat or do you get on? Do you act? You know, the people that grow are people that are proactive, that are prepared to take steps and act. You know, I'm continually amazed, and I have to say this, that people resist programs that will help them grow. You know, your marriage is crumbling and yet you'd never attend a marriage enrichment program. Why? Why? Because, you know, we have too much pride and yet God wants us to change and to grow. He wants us to overcome as these beautiful songs were about. And then James goes on in winding up to talk about something that is different to trials, which produce in us a beautiful, godly character. He goes on to talk about temptation. And he says, and it's quite an interesting, fascinating uh, verse, and remember, no one who wants to do wrong should ever say, God is tempting me. Who wants to do wrong? We will never fall into temptation unless we choose it. But that gives heart because if we choose temptation, we can also choose not to fall into temptation. You know, a recent survey of discipleship journal readers ranked areas of the greatest spiritual challenge to them. One was materialism. That was the first and greatest uh, spiritual challenge to believers, materialism. The second was pride. The third was self-centeredness. The fourth was laziness. The fifth, or it was a tie, five and six, between anger and bitterness and sexual lust. The seventh was envy. The eighth was gluttony. And the ninth was lying. 
these were the temptations that people who say they know and love Christ have in order, according to this survey of, in Discipleship Journal. But the survey respondents noted temptations were more potent when they had neglected their time with God. 81% said that. And when they were physically tired, 57%. And resisting temptation was accomplished primarily by prayer, 84% said that. Avoiding compromising situations, 76%. Bible study, 66%. And being accountable to someone, 52%. Benjamin Franklin said, it is easier to suppress the first desire than to satisfy all that follow it. And you know, there's another subtle way that Satan tempts us. Satan will seldom come to a Christian with a gross temptation because it's obvious to everyone. But a, a, a green log and a candle may be safely left together because the candle will never ignite the green log. But a few shavings, some small sticks, and then a little larger, and you can bring that green log to ashes. You see, most of us are tempted with just the little things, the things that we think people won't notice. In China... There's, a, there's an old saying, it was in the Han era, and there lived a politician called Yang Zhen, a man known for his upright character. After Yang Zhen was made a provincial governor, one of his earlier patrons, Wang Mi, paid him an unexpected visit. As they talked over old times, Wang Mi brought out a large gold cup and presented it to Yang Zhen. Yang Zhen refused to accept it, but Wang Mi persisted, saying, there's no one here tonight but you and me, so no one will know. You say that no one will know, Yang Zen replied, but that is not true. Heaven will know and you and I will know too. Wang Mi was ashamed and backed down. And I think that's the way Satan works. He gets us to be tempted in the little ways. And verse 14 says, temptation comes from the lure of our own evil desires. That's a big word, evil desires. But they're things like materialism, wanting a little bit more. They're things like pride, wanting to be better than we are. They're things like self-centeredness, wanting things our own way. They're things like laziness just not initiating, but letting someone else do it. And so temptation comes from those places. And, and James says, when these evil desires lead to evil actions, le evil actions lead to death, separation from God. And, you know, that is a very sound psychological principle, is that whatever we think in our thoughts, if we follow through in action, the thoughts will drive the action. So if I think I just want a little bit more, 
than what I've got, that will motivate my behaviour. I will probably put working for money as the motivating, guiding light in my life. So with however we think motivates our behaviour. However, having said that, Paul, uh, James says, don't be misled, dear brothers and sisters, by this slippery slope. Don't be misled because if that can happen, so too can us resisting temptation. You know, there are two lies that Satan wants us to believe. The first is that just once won't hurt. And the second is that now that you have actually ruined your life, you are beyond God's use and might as well enjoy sinning. Or you are beyond help and cannot turn back to him. They're just lies. And I just want to say to you here tonight, if anyone is grappling with a temptation that they feel is just too big to overcome, just know that there is help. There is help. There is a God that helps us. And this is how he helps us. He helps us to know that, first of all, temptation is common to all of us. We need to know that. And he tells us that in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And then he helps us by saying, temptation is of the devil. Look at Jesus in Matthew 4. And then he helps us by saying, temptation itself is not sin, but succumbing to it is, just as we read in James here. And then he helps us by saying that there is a way through that temptation and that is submitting ourselves to Jesus. And he says, no temptation is irresistible. You can trust God to keep the temptation from becoming so strong that you can't stand up against it. For he has promised this and will do what he says. He will show you how to escape temptation's power so you can bear up patiently against it. And we need to remember that whatever temptation we are facing, there is nothing that Jesus has not been tempted with first and yet was without sin. So just to wind up, how do we resist temptation and then, as James go on to say, to be like a first fruit to Jesus, to be the choice possession for Jesus? Well, we need to commit ourselves daily to God according to Romans 12.1 and by daily confession of sin so that there is no build-up in our lives. And if you read Psalm 51, you'll see that the Lord desires and loves a broken and contrite heart. So that's the first thing. Come to God. Don't run from God. Come to him. Run to him, not away. The second is subject your minds to his control. Romans 12, 2 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
We only do that through Jesus. Colossians 3.2 says, set your affection or your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. And then the discipline of prayer. Let us approach the throne of grace, the Bible says in 4.16, with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, Jesus wants you to approach him. There is no shame that is too great. You see, he nailed that to the cross. There is nothing that now separates you from our Lord Jesus Christ because of the cross. So come to him in your time of need. The fourth way is by reading, studying and memorising the word of God. D.L. Moody said, sin will keep you from this book, the Bible, or this book will keep you from sin. It's one or the other. Let this book keep you from sin. Number five, associate with the right kind of friends. God's people. Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. And in Hebrews 10, 24, it's one of my favourite scriptures. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching, let us encourage each other no matter where we're at. Number six, put on the whole armour of God. You can read that in Ephesians 6 about spiritual warfare. The devil is real and we need to be real about the weapons that we use to confront the devil. Depend, number seven, on the Holy Spirit. Depend on our Lord Jesus to help us through our temptations. You know, the Holy Spirit comes and he says that he is the comforter, the one who comes and stands beside us. I wonder if you know the Holy Spirit, really know the Holy Spirit in your life. I, I realised last Sunday night we had an all-night prayer vigil and, and God, God was doing a work on me and in me. And he revealed to me something that, through my pride, I thought I had arrived. I thought that I was living pretty well, fully surrendered to him. And, and he showed me last Sunday night that that was a lie. I'm not fully surrendered to Jesus. There are parts in my life that have got a no-go zone, a no-fishing zone. And... And I felt, I felt really bad. I felt, I felt really humbled that A, I would think that and B, that I, I persisted in that. But, but James in his word gives us hope because he says, no, do you want to grow? Do you want to grow? Do you want to endure? Because if you do, if you persist in this transformative process, 
in this thing called discipleship, in this thing called sanctification, which basically means just being able to be more like Jesus by resisting temptation, by allowing the trials in our life to transform us, by surrendering, then then we'll be like his choice possession. Then we'll we'll receive the crown of life. I want that. Do, Do you want that? I really want that. Then if you want that, then humbly submit. Don't let pride stop you from actively tearing off that muddy raincoat and saying, Lord, here I am standing naked before you. Do with me what you would have. I pray that for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we just thank you for your word. We We come before you and we humbly submit to you yet again. And Lord, I would just pray that if there are people here tonight that have never submitted to you and yet this this word has uh, spoken to their heart, Lord Jesus, just help them tonight to come and speak to someone, to speak to one of our prayers, to humbly come before you and submit. Lord, I pray that if there are people here tonight that just know how in need they are of you, whether they're facing a huge trial or just a low-grade, everyday, onerous trial in their life, Lord, may they come and humbly submit to you and ask for wisdom. Lord, if there are those here tonight that are facing temptations and just feel that it's just too big, they're like the green log and it's just impossible to overcome, Lord, may they ask for wisdom, may they pray, may they humbly submit to you here tonight. Lord, if there are those here tonight that are grappling with just little temptations yet they know things are not right, that it's wrong, Lord, Let it be that they come and call unto you, humbly submit to you, Lord Jesus. Ask for your gracious wisdom. Lord, we thank you that you give us life and a way through. And we thank you for your word which brings us life. In Jesus' precious name, amen.